Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy. We have some more queer things for you this week. I'm Hannah Bestwick and I'm here as always with... Daisy Dustin Gent. Hey, good evening, Hannah. Hey, Daisy. How are you today? really good actually um, i've had a really like productive positive week hey yeah feeling feeling really feeling really good how are you nice i'm okay i am um, so i was trimming a hedge which isn't a euphemism <laughs> but i was trimming a hedge for my parents today but i've got really bad hay fever uh, <laughs> and i'm on prescription antihistamines mm. and i was like ha i can chop this hedge you watch me watch me take on this hedge i'm gonna be so butch it's gonna be so good <laughs> And then I couldn't stop sneezing for about half an hour and I had to go... While handling machinery. My eyes were like watering. I was like crying oh, no, and snotting. And I was like, I've made a huge mistake. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> I've made a grave error. Um, but I have since recovered. So here we are. My voice is a little bit gravelly because of all the sneezing and the coughing. But uh, Hay fever is terrible because if you haven't had it before, you'll wake up suddenly one day, you know, you could be going about your life and then suddenly you'll wake up and your throat has been taken over by demons yeah. um, and your eye and you can't stop crying. Yeah. Even if you're not sad, you know, and just and suddenly your nose streams. It is and it, and it never leaves and then you have it for the rest of time. Exactly. And like, I I love being outdoors. <laughs> yeah, you love being outdoors. I love nature. I love the flowers and the hedges. And I just want to rub my face on all the trees. Yeah, I love sticking my head in blossom. You know, I love it. Yeah. And then all that does is leave me really itchy and sneezing and like sad. It's a punishment from nature. My eyes and nose. It's a punishment for loving the natural world. It's really unfair. Yeah, it's like the, you know, the the rose bush is saying, hey, back off, mate. Too close there. Too close, but too soon. We're not quite there yet. (laughs) I did think about this last year. Like when, you know, when you couldn't touch anyone or hug anyone or go near anyone, I was like, how many people Mm. have stuck their nose and mouth in this flower? you know on the way to the supermarket though because it is beautiful and it smells great Whoa. but like how many other noses have been in here um you know it's a risk i'm willing that to take that's a good point it won't stop me yeah visiting the same flower you know you still got to enjoy that flower you and you you're do. here to tell the tale of that wonderful do you flower. know what this actually links really nicely onto what i'm going to talk about oh please this do. week what have you got for me today um so i'm going to talk about um heritage and hidden heritage and okay, like yeah. you know queer rural uh, lifestyles and uh, the countryside so yeah I feel, I feel like that's quite a quite a nice segue yes please please go because I feel like there's this this kind of assumption that like the rural countryside is not a place for queer people you know that people who identify as LGBTQ plus um, sort of will naturally gravitate towards um, you know cities because you know for the life the nightlife and you know this kind of more metropolitan you know connected lifestyle um, and yeah. the countryside is often where the queers are exactly like you you're kind of you know the countryside has been often seen as like a really straight place yeah. so how, how on earth can like queer people feel that they exist there um you know let alone belong and i think like it's ultimately about reflection that's what it kind of comes mm. down to and like what i mean by that is not like a, a long pensive stroll through the fields but like a tangible queer lifestyle being reflected back at queer people um living in the country now living in the countryside now and you know, I've been thinking a lot about visibility and like normalising queer history um, and basically like seeing the lives of ordinary people, you know, where around you, you know, as just being that, you know, ordinary. So I've been doing a lot of, I've been doing a lot of thinking. And is this is this kind of under the umbrella of Cottagecore or is Cottagecore under the umbrella of what you're talking about? You could about? probably like, yeah, you know, pull it all in. Maybe Cottagecore is kind of emerging from this like acceptance that queer people do live in the countryside Um and mm, okay, you don't yeah, yeah. have to run away to the city like you can be comfortable and live a very happy queer life in in the country yeah, yeah, so yeah. i'm going to be talking about like queer histories and rural queer histories 
specifically so like when you know when digging around for queer histories like we inevitably run into issues of erasure you know Mm. across the board uh like sometimes not even deliberate ones but often linguistic as we've uh, as we've spoken about you know people not having the right language or the the language to self-identify in the ways that we do now like in the i think it was the last episode we talked about in in queer obituaries people are often described as like never married which was like a way for jen a meme i sent you as well yeah yeah yeah. it was a way for journalists to basically say um you know and historians to conceal someone's sexuality essentially the reason this would happen is because of um section 28 uh which was obviously the clause that forbid the promotion of homosexuality and it meant that you know many queer histories were were hidden from for a large portion of both of you know our educations and you know many museums textbooks uh exhibitions documentation like still adhere to this um you know these constrictions even now so i was doing a bit of research um and i came across this journalist called um timothy also who's written you know loads of terrific um articles about queer um histories queer rural histories um and documenting that and he describes this as like a kind of a catalogued bias basically um which resulted in like a vast amount of lgbt QIA history is just being disregarded completely or you know or lost altogether um which is even worse mm, so it's like error carried forwards yeah you make a mistake or you neglect to include something first mm. the first time it's written down and then everybody who uses that original yeah. reference material doesn't get that information yeah 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 like it's so hard to go back yeah 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 exactly yeah, yeah. to document something wow um like yeah it's a back catalog that's like impossible so you have to kind of go with the most yeah. you know recent thing which if it's suddenly you know if something drops out of history like then that becomes the more plausible story or like the more accessible story for example mm-hmm. but like things are always changing and we can you know we can we can learn and we can uncover such a lot by just digging a little deeper so you know the wikipedia article that comes up might have a really like basic level but if you start to like look under the surface and, and dig um and digging is going to be like a, mm. a central theme to what i'm going to say then yeah you find a if you understand the linguistics you know these little tropes if you will then we can you know we can find a bit more and um you know the way in which things have been documented uh you know we can paint a bit more like of an accurate picture um, or at least like a more informed picture if we just you know we have these tools in our belt hannah yeah so as with so much of our exploration we must uh, intervene with a certain level of um creativity uh, and imagination so that's what yes, we're gonna indeed. that's what we're gonna do today so through a project called queer rural Co- connections in association with the uh, Museum of English Rural Life, as well as Pride and Suffolk's Past and Broken Futures, uh, Timothy Alsop describes how the project aims to challenge the idea that queer people, that being queer, sorry, means being urban. And so he kind of talks about how like being gay shouldn't mean that one must like give up their comfortable rural lifestyle in order to just you know be visible and accepted in the throes of like a thriving uh, social circle in the city. Like belonging, belonging should always be a choice, right? And it kind of, kind of. He kind of asks that we maybe adjust what we what we see queer success as and what it looks like. And maybe it's not this kind of busy boho, soho, socialite after all. You know, maybe it is a single independent landowner or like the queer couple at the end of the the lane living a quiet life, growing their vegetables. You know, why isn't that seen as, I love you know, them. the archetype? Why is it this kind of flamboyant, yeah. fancy, dandy? Fancy yeah, <laughs> Going to metropolitan art museums and things like yeah. that. Why aren't they just exactly. your neighbourhood gays? Exactly. Like, what about the queer people who prefer the slower pace of uh, non-urban dwelling? Um, you know, where are those stories? The people who value space and, and personal freedom, like over this kind of really bustling um, metropolitan city like because i do think there's a lot of like as a as a queer person you almost have to make the choice do i give up 
Mm. Like I, I, I don't really actually function very well in the city. Yeah, I much prefer being in the countryside, having space, going on long walks, and just like a slow pace of life. But I was very lonely, and so yeah, I was yeah. like, well, I just kind of have to make the choice to go and move to a city mm. in order to have friends, yeah. you know, and, and fall in love and things like that. And yeah, you have to give it up yeah, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. So the rural space is often associated with, you know, isolation, with that feeling of, of loneliness yeah. and, and being disconnected from, you know, people like you around you. But it does raise this point that like, you know, maybe we need to to check our definition of isolation, you know, because perhaps for some people a connection to the land or you know, or the self may in fact be stronger when in rural settings. And those stories aren't aren't captured as often. Um, you know, it's a very common mm. narrative for queer kids to grow up feeling isolated and then move to the city, fall in love and then maybe move back once they've like found their people, right? Like that's a really common mm. narrative. And in one of uh, Tim Allsop's interviews with a PhD student at the University of Brighton, uh, Joe Dukes, they state... Uh, that we tend to misimagine the countryside as something that is negative in contrast to the city, which I, I kind of agree with, actually, you know, particularly as somewhere that is like overly naturalised um, and kind of it's very mm. separate. It's separated from urban life, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost like there's a it feels sometimes like there's a boundary yeah. that you just cross and then you're in the countryside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like a wall, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. The city folk and the country bumpkins and you sort of see the you know tim kind of says about how people see the going to the countryside as like you know an escape and you go there to maybe relax or to recover from you know for health reasons or you know you recover and then you come back to the city like you always come back to the city mm. so i think we sort of you know we discredit the countryside's offerings um for queer people you know so in terms of opportunity work entertainment and you know this queer lifestyle we just don't see that narrative or that opportunity in in the countryside very often um the countryside is seen as this like it is seen as an escape but the biggest city is sort of held as the kind of the gay mecca would you agree mm, like mm. you know a kind of higher yeah, more yeah. elite metropolis for the successful gays you know um that's where they go yeah you kind of think like yeah the more successful the richer gays are in the city mm. or the richer queer people are in the city and that's i guess that's twofold it's partly because like things jobs pay better yeah in the city and also you have to be paid better to live in the city but there is this kind of idea of the suave mm. city queer. Yeah, like it would be ridiculous for you to not live in the city if you're queer. Like, where where would you go? Like, there's this weird kind of, yeah, yeah it's like a, you know, like a prejudice towards, you know, oh, you're living your little bumpkin life. Like, I think that, def that definitely exists. Yeah. And I also think that maybe, you know, there's a lot of, so coming out must, you know, is harder. It's more, maybe it's a slower process in the countryside like just maybe due to the the lack of you know diverse venues or inclusive spaces um where queer people can you know are, where they're welcomed and um and celebrated you know maybe there just aren't those spaces whereas you think of like the rich lgbtq history in london and you know and the bigger cities um it's just far more well known rather mm. than rural queer history so like those places are, you know they're naturally going to attract queer people from the countryside, like leaving the countryside in order for them to feel that sense of belonging that they may never have felt, um, you know, particularly if their yeah. own history, uh, which may be almost on their doorstep, is is practically invisible. Um, so I've been thinking about that. And also uh, talks about um, the invisibility of LGBTQ people um, in rural areas, like has often meant a greater degree of heterosexist presumption. Uh, which I thought was an interesting term mm -hmm. in the country, which in turn has just made coming out, like the process of coming out way more fraught. And he talks about like the lack of perceived role models, you know, as well as having like hardly any allies or allyship, 
um, you know, people may be accepting, but they're not, you know, championing local, mm. local queer people. They also may, like, may want to be accepting, but mm. one of the th- issues is, is, like, the population density in the countryside is much lower. So, mm. actually, like, your parents if they've always lived in the countryside, they might not have actually met that many other queer people. And so their ignorance could come across as homophobia or like transphobia. Mm -hmm. And even if they do feel progressive, actually, if they've just not met that many queer people. You would assume that there isn't anyone like that here because you don't, you don't know or maybe there isn't if yeah. someone hasn't identi- you know self-identified and publicized told yeah, you even. exactly and it can just just result in like uncomfortable awkwardness that you know as a teenager yeah. if you're trying to think about coming out and then your parents are just being awkward about yeah. gay people on tv yeah like, yeah, yeah. Oh, i just don't want to do this and if you're single as well like you wouldn't be like but i'm that person like people maybe would go to university for example or move to the city for work find find their people find maybe a partner and then be like okay now i can say yeah then have a almost like a reason to come Mm -hmm. out and you sort of there's a bit more of an idea that in the city you're more likely as you're growing up to to have to find your people to find a partner at a younger age and therefore might need to come out younger yeah yeah Yeah, i mean we come across this every episode right like people who are presumed to be straight you know they say like you know he never married they lived as companions all that stuff so Mm. projects such as um pride and suffolk's past uh, seem really interesting and really valuable um, for people, you know, of all ages to feel supported by their community without having to flee to the, you know, to the city or, you know, or delay their coming out. It's like you have these exhibitions and people go, oh, there, there were people like me or there are people like me and it is supported. And maybe I can, mm. maybe I can come out here and be my, my true self and, you know, live an authentic life. Something I, yeah, something I mentioned in the social media episode actually was, you know, the power of YouTube to connect young people in rural areas and, there are just like loads of examples of young queer people sharing stories and experiences online, um, which must be like so immeasurably valuable, you know, mm. building this like this network, you know, almost in real time, um, you know, just this kind of connected live history, which, you know, it's so much harder to document something retrospectively, like once the ev- evidence has been covered up or lost it's gone it's really hard to dig back through yeah it is i remember years ago seeing the first ftm transition vlog Mm. on youtube Mm. and just been like absolutely amazed because i'd never i'd like google things about like what what does it mean to be trans because i didn't i didn't really know any trans people and i i kind of felt very ignorant Mm. and then i found this vlog and i sort of watched it and i was like this is amazing yeah yeah there's so much more in this experience than I could read about yeah. in like on the NHS website or something like whatever was available at the time. Mm. And that kind of community has increased amazingly since Definitely. that, like you said, like if it wasn't written down as it wasn't written down years ago, no. what that was like, nobody can know. Yeah. Whereas now that it's kind of out there, you can find out what it's like for people yeah. going through different experiences. Definitely. And you can say, oh, that's, that's like me. And you can see someone who is, you know, going through the same experiences that you might be going through and you can, you know, you don't have to feel isolated. You know, they could be hundreds of miles yeah. away, but they're still having a time in, you know, in North Yorkshire and you're having a time in, you know, in Suffolk or whatever. And you you can connect through, you know, 
through social media. Yeah. So I think so. Something the final thing I will say about um about this this article that um Tim wrote is that there is a, like a level of devaluing and scorn that goes towards uh, rural queer spaces. Like even if you do have a, a gay pub, it's kind of it's maybe seen as like lesser than I don't know G A Y in London. Um and like mm. actually upon reflection, Tim knows that these were actually you know they were really vital parts of his own queer awakening. And you know you shouldn't you shouldn't kind of dim the 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 importance of of representation you know in in these small rural areas you know like 12 queer people in a pub in a real pub you know to strike up a conversation with is going to be way more valuable for someone who is isolated rather than knowing there's a whole thriving city of strangers in you know brighton or manchester like and so i think uncovering like the richness of these of these queer histories outside of the well-known cities that encourages people from you know all walks of life um all ages to connect and strengthen the existing community without having to like abandon the countryside because there's a there's this assumption that queer people would just be more comfortable in the city but that's like you know that's a sweeping generalization yeah yeah and i think like there's something in that maybe of being like yeah maybe we do feel more comfortable in the city probably because people pay less attention to each other in the city yeah you know you don't feel so looked at yeah. and that's if we just didn't get stared at in the countryside we'd be just as comfortable there yeah. city people just you know you can't pay attention to everybody you walk past because yeah. like we hundred people hundreds of people a day yeah but you're talking about like little country gay pubs reminded me that my parents once went to i think it was fucking truro or something somewhere in the middle of nowhere Truro is not in the middle of nowhere but it was a pretty small place near there yeah, yeah. they went to this pub it wasn't a gay pub but it was owned by this gay couple that they were chatting to at the bar and they were holding their own little pride <gasps> in the pub Magic. with like just the two of them and they had one friend who was in drag yes. and my dad took a selfie with the drag queen and he was really excited yes. about it. And he showed me, the, sent me the selfie and was like, I've just met this drag queen. That's amazing. I mean, that should go in a museum. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's, it was, I think they were so, they were so pleased and so excited that in this tiny little town, they were, they still had their own yeah. tiny yeah, little yeah, yeah. pride. And I was well, like, you go You know, guys. that can only get bigger, you know, that can only grow. You know, you might think yeah. that there's no interest. Imagine the queer kids in that town yeah. that are just like, oh, I can be proud yeah. I can be proud I can see this couple celebrating themselves and their one drag queen friend yeah. and that's that's good and that's okay mm. imagine the impact yeah definitely yeah. and then like to set up something like that people might come from you know miles around just to yeah to to meet people and to and to feel a sense of connection yeah I mean uh, also like talks about being able to connect you know loosely connect parts of his 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 personal past of being a queer experience like just because of the nature of him being queer you know like the landscape where he would go and make mm. out with boys in the forest for example um but he said his Saucy. key connection um came from the discovery that he was actually distantly related to uh, Mr. Basil Brown, um, a name you may recognise if you've watched um, the film The Dig, um, which was recently released on Netflix. Oh, I haven't. I was thinking about Basil Brush. (laughs) Sorry. He was related to Basil Brush, who used to, you know, dig around in his foxy dens. The puppet fox. Yeah, Yeah, puppet fox. No, Basil Brown is uh, not a puppet fox. Um, uh, There was a film about him uh, released on Netflix starring Carrie Mulligan and uh, Rafe Fiennes, and he was a self-taught archaeologist, like, like a key player in the discovery of the Sutton Who Anglo-Saxon treasure in 1939. I don't know it, but awesome. Buried treasure, amazing, um, love it. Well, you wouldn't know it because for a long time he was actually uh, uh, omitted from the history of the Anglo-Saxon treasure. And like, this is a like, big deal 
Anglo-Saxon like treasure in in um in Suffolk, and yeah, Tim found out that uh, he was related like quite distantly to to Basil Brown, and he says my willingness to let Basil Brown into my consciousness seemed to come from the fact that he, like me, was a working class boy from a farming background, whose interests were uncannily like my own. It thrilled me to think that Basil was looking up at the same night sky in the 1930s. So one with the stars as he as he was the soil, mm. and the Netflix film actually goes um, quite a long way to recenter Basil as um, you know in the Sutton Hoo discovery, and also like questions his absence mm. from history. You know why has no one heard of this man who actually found all this fucking Anglo-Saxon treasure? Mm. And it was assumed that like class was basically the main reason right. um, that he was obscured because he was he was paid a weekly wage um, for his excavation work. And then when the when um, the large scale Cambridge research team with all their money, like, you know, they showed up to take control of the dig um, once they caught wind of what the, you know, the contents of the mounds, uh, which sort of, you know, overshadowed Basil's hard and honest work. So this kind of this shows like one of the many ways that, you know, prejudices it can impact the telling of history. Class seems to be just, you know, just as much a barrier as queerness in the case of Basil Brown. And often buried histories are only uncovered through you know you know sometimes it's only uncovered through like delving through criminal records for you know for some people they may have been completely in the closet but then you find out these things through the criminal record actually um there is an online exhibition coming up of like criminal archives um in a kind of lgbt context um i'll oh, send wow. you a link for that but it's such a shitter it, it, like so i just honestly to have the only recognition of your sexuality to be your criminal record is so offensive it's, it's mad. so it's wild deeply hurtful i just yeah i feel mad I feel mad about i that. mean there's a lot of really tragic like so the the organization broken futures who are also part of this this project um yeah they do a lot to uncover you know queer histories through criminal archives and you know it's it's not the nicest way to get to that information it's it's a real shame that yeah things have been covered up but they you know the only reason they have to exist is because it's criminal law or whatever anyway so timothy also he admitted that he felt you know a struggle to feel at home growing up in 90s suffolk but he has since spoken about the way that you know in learning more about his heritage and discovering this connection to um basil brown alongside his his own research into queer rural lives he now states east anglia is a part of who i am Basil has created a deeper emotional um, resonance for me. To some extent, the fact that he and his wife were childless, along with his reluctance to just be seen as a farm labourer, felt like a queer story to me. He did not allow himself to be defined so narrowly, which I think was quite nice. That is very nice. I've got some other, I've got some other examples of queer rural life um, to take you through. Yeah, please. Um, another key person in uh, British rural farming history is Lady Evelyn Balfour, uh, born in 1898. Um, and you may recognise the name. Uh, as a var- variety of potato is named after her. Oh, um, the Lady I didn't, Balfour. Thank you. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm going to look for those. Lady Balfour's, described by lovepotatoes.co.uk as performing well as mash, boiled, or wedges. Um, but no, they, <laughs> were, like they were not. Uh, the they only were... kind of potatoes, though. Mash, boil, and wedges. The other ones, what? Fries? If you can't perform well as as mash, like, what are you doing as a potato, to be honest? What even is your life? Um, right? But I'm, I'm digressing. Uh, so, Lady, Lady Eve. Uh, uh, they were named after her because she was a true pioneer in uh, UK farming in the UK farming scene. After studying agriculture at Reading University, uh, w- one of the first female students to do so at just seventeen. Damn nice! And at the age of twenty, her and her sister bought a farm in Hawley Green, Suffolk, where she went on to write *The Living Soil*. Uh, which was regarded as uh, one of the founding texts of the organic movement Amazing. and co-founded the Soil Association in 1945, which is a, you know, a charity that's still going today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it made a huge impact on the farming industry. 
setting the organic and sustainability standards and you know ultimately transforming the way we eat farm and care for our natural world so pretty badass that's amazing like, she changed how we eat that's pretty pretty big deal that's a that's an impact that's a real it impact. is yeah what have i done today um so lady <laughs> eve balfour lived with her partner kathleen car carnley um noted to be a very skilled dairy worker and they lived Two together for ladies. more than 50 years farmy ladies just doing their thing didn't have to you know go for a sloppy night out in london they could just meet on the farm and amazing do their thing. they sound so good yeah sounds like a dream life to be honest like she bought her own farm with her sister um and yeah set up this this amazing um amazing organization to transform how farming the face of farming mm-hmm. so yeah would be a cool person to know about if you uh, if you live in Suffolk. Next up in our rural queer icons list, we've got Louisa Garrett Anderson, CBE, uh, who was a pioneering <laughs> surgeon and suffragette. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was a fellow at the Royal Society of Medicine. Um, and when the First World War broke out, Anderson and her partner, Flora Murray, founded the Women's Hospital Corps. Awesome uh, women to staff it as well. Amazing, um, amazing. Murray was appointed chief physician. Uh, and and Anderson became the chief surgeon. So a couple of pretty badass CBUs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, as well as being pioneers in medicine, as if that wasn't enough, uh, the couple were also suffragettes, as I mentioned. And Anderson was one of over 100 women who were arrested during the Black Friday demonstration outside the House of Parliament um, in November uh, 1910. The demonstrators were campaigning for, um, you know, to secure voting rights for women but uh, the protest was named black friday after the violence displayed by the metropolitan police and male bystanders towards the protesters uh, including physical and even sexual assault so pretty grim um and it's reported that over like yeah 115 women were arrested but by the morning they were all released uh, without charge goodness i think she also um i think she also was arrested she spent time i read uh, in like holloway prison for throwing a brick at some point nice um so yeah maybe that's a common common um you know in the 19 yeah in the 1910s you know maybe throwing a brick is like another (laughs) trope yeah i wonder how often the pairing of being in jail for being queer and being in jail for throwing a brick uh often on the same record yeah one, yeah, yeah, yeah. One after the other. Bricks in queer history. My next essay. <laughs> so Murray and Anderson were both appointed uh, to the Order of the British Empire as commanders and awarded their CBE titles in CBE. August 1917. Nice. Just such, so cool. Just really, yeah, really cool. Like, really impactful life-changing work anderson died in brighton um, and her ashes were scattered over the south downs um so you know still connected to that Mm. um you know the rural history and um she's actually memorialized on the couple's shared gravestone um in penn buckinghamshire uh, where they'd lived together so of course on the gravestone they're noted as um friends which is just so annoying i'm so done with seeing i'm just so done with seeing it but we know that they were you know a hugely successful and groundbreaking couple um in the medical world and what's nice is that on their gravestone the inscription reads we were gloriously happy which is oh my god that is so sweet so it's like you know fuck you like all caps we were gloriously happy and it's like and her friend i just want to i just want to go and slap a sticker over friends and just put lovers or yeah yeah married or whatever like 
We were gloriously happy. That is the most beautiful thing. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. Yeah, promoting queer joy. And finally, I want to talk about uh, Nina Layard, uh, who was a poet, archaeologist, um, and prehistorian who lived in Ipswich uh, with her partner, Mary. And she was interested in natural history from like a really young age. An enthusiastic uh, collector of eggs and shells as a child. Good. Um, Got to have a hobby. (laughs) Um, And she was one of um, the first four women to be admitted to the Society of um, Antiquaries uh, of London. Um, And she went on to become the first woman uh, to be president of the Prehistoric Society of East Anglia. That is fucking sick. So no small feat. Absolutely sick. And yeah, her her excavation at at the Hadley Road site in Ipswich uncovered an Anglo-Saxon cemetery under threat from a road expansion project. Um, And Layard recovered uh, a total of 159 graves, along with, you know, many goods and artefacts, which are, um, you know, now displayed in the Ipswich Museum um, and considered like a really vital part of Suffolk's history. And she just found those. She was just like, I'm just going to dig. I'm just going to excavate this. Yeah, I think this particular bit of ground vibes with exciting treasure. Yeah, and also like... You know, a lot of her work um, attributed a lot of findings to uh, to confirm that prehistoric uh, life existed, like, you know, Ice Age, like, mm. human, um, ev- you know, evidence of, of those ancient people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, just really, really cool shit and, like, a great, great uh, role model to have in the on-team LGBTQ. Yeah. Yeah, so there we have it. Like, you know, how? so I want to ask, like, how, you know, how would the lives of... of queer people growing up in rural English countryside have changed like having known about the rich queer history surrounding them you know I used to go to Suffolk quite a lot as a, as a kid and you know if they'd have been singing and dancing about um you know these amazing um you know amazing queer women in history yeah you know maybe you'd just be like a bit more feel a bit more connected to those places um, yeah and I think that like yeah you'd have less because I, I think about this quite a lot about like how a lot of the older queer men that would would have been like my parents' friends. They're my parents' age. They're all they're all mm. dead. Not all of them, but like almost all of them died because of the AIDS crisis. And if mm. it had been the case that like the countryside was more embracing of their their queer history, not just the non queer history, you know, there'd be mm. less queer people running to the city for salvation yeah. or for sanctuary. And so actually, we'd be more embedded in just like whatever. Yeah. whatever town we're in rather than having to feel like well I've got to get away I've got to get away because yeah. I don't yeah. belong here we'd be like oh no because there's all like there's those two ladies that live together down the road and there's those homos yeah Murray and Anderson yeah and just be like I belong here as well and I don't have to run away it can be quite painful like coming because I'm staying at my parents house still it can be quite painful coming back and just remembering how desperately I needed to get away because I didn't know anybody Mm. and I was just like yeah I felt like people were looking at me on the street like I didn't look unusual but I just felt unusual you felt out of place yeah and I felt uninvited I don't know if that makes sense like I felt just like Mm. you you don't belong and so I had to leave and then you know coming back it can be quite sad and also sad because I I love the countryside and I love being here out in the rural in rural England I think it's so beautiful especially in the spring and the summer that I feel like I missed out on a lot of years of just Mm. enjoying and you shouldn't have to choose right you shouldn't have to choose where you belong you know some people love the city and they were born there and you know it's great they love it some people move there and they love it yeah. Some people move there and they hate it. And, you know, there has to be an option or, you know, or to not even have to feel that you're running away 
yeah. to the city just to feel just to be accepted um, yeah you should be allowed able yeah. to just like be where you want to be yeah not i mean i mean like hopefully through like the work you know these local councils and arts organizations are doing to uncover the documents and you know exhibit these these queer lives historical queer lives you know these hopefully that you know this will kind of lay a foundation for us to you know, connect a bit more with our rural hidden heritages and, you know, exhibit these really valuable queer stories because, you know, it's our past, it's our history and we we have a right to feel connected to it. Yeah, we do. That was really nice. Thank you, Daisy. I feel like putting together some kind of travelling exhibition to show in the little town memorial in town halls, you know, (laughs) like the little... Oh, there is is something I found which is called the... um, the Pride Escape Rooms, which is happening Ooh. at um, the Hold in Ipswich uh, in June in 2021, which is which is this year. Oh my God. And it's like a series of um, escape rooms, like discovering the fascinating lives of uh, Anderson, uh, yeah, Louisa Anderson and, and Nina Layard, who I mentioned, within the Suffolk archives. Oh my God. And they're doing like a bunch of escape rooms where you kind of, you get to decode cryptic messages. Um, That's so You know, good. solve riddles and, and gather clues. Um, so... I think that's where we're going to be on the on the sixth of June. Yeah, like. I think so. Because that I almost thought. It was How great be does like, that sound? I feel like they should make because we Daisy and I played Caper in the Castro, which was that nineteen eighty nine queer oh, yeah. uh, point and click adventure with Tracker McDyke and Tessie Lafemme. I I was hoping that what you were going to describe to me was a an escape the room game, but based on that video game. <laughs> Oh, you that, could, would be... that would be I would play that get that I would play that I would go to that escape the room what yeah if you're a video it? game designer and you're hearing this um yeah you just need to take the take the basic script of uh, yeah. the Castro and just add in these names <laughs> make it a bit up. more like countryside yeah but that so yeah let's go let's do it but thank you Daisy that was really really nice to like hear and listen to and just like I don't know I really enjoyed it I really enjoyed that thanks when I heard you were drinking uh, organic wine I thought hey we're onto something here <laughs> Wait till I tell Hannah um, about Lady Eve. <laughs> Wait till I tell Hannah about the Soil Association. Little do you know, I know about that because my dad has been donating to them for years and they send us a magazine every few months. Yo. <laughs> Yo. Hey, hey. So I just checked with my parents and, you know, I said that uh, they went to Toro Pride or whatever. It wasn't that. So I just checked with them uh, at, during our brief intermission and apparently it was a place called Goring it was Goring Pride they went to Goring Pride shout out <sighs> okay Daisy I've I've got uh, a topic for you today that some parts of it might gross you out a bit <laughs> okay but you can t- you can tell me if it's too gross and I will I will cut out the super gross bits but okay um, so you know you know I studied biology at uni uh, well I did zoology but like the most common thing people say to me when I say I did zoology is that they say, oh, my God, I love zoos, which honestly, like, well, I love zoos and it's great, but that's not why I didn't study zoos. Mm-hmm. I studied animals yep. and I did bio- a biology degree in essence, but I just did less uh, stuff about plants. And the biology students used to tell me that I wasn't doing a real degree. And I was like, you're just being mean. Um, but after the I love zoos bit the next question that I normally get is what's my favourite animal Mm. and that is a really difficult question to ask please don't ask me that because I never know the answer and I love almost all animals there are some out there that are dickheads but Mm -hmm. um, I do have a lot of of animals I love uh, that Mm. there's no all-time favourite is it like a like a a myspace friends list where like those 10 the ten favorites, or yeah, the eight yeah, favorites, yeah, whatever yeah. it is, just shuffle grid. around. It's it's very much like that. It depends how if I'm someone feeling. pisses you off, there, you know, down they go. Um, so, mm. 
I'm going to talk to you about uh, what I think is one of the queerest or what has been called one of the queerest animals or the most bisexual yes. animal. Now, I went on this one website. So I've used a, a Wikipedia article, uh, a paper on ResearchGate called uh, Homosexual Behaviour in Primates, uh, a BBC article on Are There Any Homosexual Animals, an animalia.bio webpage, and Ooh. another Wikipedia on the animal too. On the animalia webpage, which I think is primarily aimed at children it had some stats about this animal so actually what i want you to try and do is guess what it is so the stats are lifespan (gasps) 35 to 50 years top speed 40 kilometers an hour weight 30 to 60 kilograms height 115 centimeters and length controversial 70 to 83 centimeters what do you think this is uh i'm gonna look really stupid if i don't if i can't like visualize are we talking like hippo size? Are we talking like I don't know. Well, 115 size? centimetres is about somewhere in my waist region, I think. A penguin? Is it a type of penguin? Oh, no, it's not. But that is a pretty good guess. It's one of our two closest relatives, okay? And they're both sort of equal relation. And uh, mm. yeah, it's... Yeah, a monkey. It is a kind of monkey. And it's called the bonobo. Is it a bonobo? Yes, it's a bonobo. That's <gasps> it. Oh my God, you did it. Yes. <laughs> And so tries. you you know of the bonobo then I'm imagining. Mm. T- what do you what do you know of it? Are bonobos the one with the um the funky noses? No, but no. I know the ones you mean. They're called um proboscis monkeys because their big nose is like a they like a proboscis, which is the name of the little tonguey bit that insects have. Very mm. cool. Cool. So the bonobo is also called the pygmy chimpanzee, and it's one mm-hmm. of the great apes, and it's the ge- in the genus Pan. So uh, we use the binomial. Naming system, having two names, you've got your genus and your species because of there was this fancy pants Swedish man called Carl Linnaeus who was like, I think we should give them two names and put them into groups. So we did that. We were just like, yeah, cool. <laughs> he knows what he's on about. And Pan is the genus for chimpanzees and bonobos. Um, and okay. though sometimes and quite often bonobos are just also called chimps because they look very similar. Okay. And they just live either side of the Congo River. And so what okay. what they think happened probably is there was one large population of, of a common ancestor for the two species mm-hmm. in the area. Then the river formed and divided the population in two. Sort of like the Berlin Wall, but... Exactly. Um, but, ne- but, neither, <laughs> but neither the bonobos or chimpanzees can swim very well. So there was no cross-speciation between the sides of the river. So that's how you have bonobos. Okay, so they developed separately. Exactly. Bonobos are south of the river and chimpanzees are the north of the river. And that's fine. Yeah. Okay. I've written here, yoo-hoo, uh, for some reason, for like <laughs> across the river buddies. Not sure why. Um, but the bonobo <laughs> is distinguished by having relatively long legs pink lips mm-hmm. which chimpanzees don't have dark faces a tail tuft and they have nice little parted hair it's quite got like a little party on the top it's really cute hey guys yeah very little sweet. choir boys <laughs> <laughs> and when i say it's the most bisexual animal that's uh like in comparison to other animals which exhibit some homosexual behavior do you remember in the episode uh i think it was episode 14 on the queer pole in the queerness in the polar regions yes. about how there is a sipinik word for homosexuality which just tends to it only describes a behavior it's not a person that is gay it is just a behavior Mm, that is homosexual so that's kind of what they used to describe in the animal kingdom because you can't really say mr monkey how do you identify he identifies do you you identify as gay they just do something that is homosexual sometimes a lot of homosexual behavior in other animals because it is it is evidenced in almost every other species of animal 
there is homosexual behavior mm-hmm. but in in a lot of animal species interesting there is it can it's usually around the time of mating season uh when everyone's really horny uh sometimes if there's a shortage of mates they will just pair up in okay. homosexual pairs and just kind of it satisfies anyway. yeah it satisfies an urge it's not an ongoing in most species it's not an ongoing thing they do throughout their life it's just normally uh sorry it's just quite often around breeding season when they're all sexually active Mm. anyway okay there are in fact in for a penny in for a pound like if you're if you've already mated you might as well have a have a little yeah on the way or if you can't find someone like you just whoever's there help a brother out yeah you know any port in a storm all of that yeah but with bonobos it's throughout their lifetime throughout the year they just they have partners of opposite or same sex whenever they feel like it. It's not contained to the times when they're just feeling the horniest. Okay. Okay. They just they don't discriminate. Switch it up. Yeah. Um, and there actually are only two animals which have homosexual preference for life, as in aren't bisexual as most animals seem to be, and those are mm. humans. Uh, some humans have a homosexual preference for life. And, do- humans, and domestic yeah. sheep. Really? Yeah. It's very rogue, I thought. I was like, no. They're way. comfortable. Yeah. They know who they are. So apparently some rams just will never, never look at a you. They're just like, I'm just not into it. And they'll just, and so they'll only be interested in other men. So that's their business. I'm just not into you. I can't believe you just punned that. But I love it. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting about bonobos is um, they're quite unique among non-human primates for not having male dominance. Okay. So as the default, female bonobos usually dominate the society through a kind of coalition, okay, of high-ranking oh, nice. females. Sometimes some males are in there as well, but for the most, like most often, it's just a female monkey government uh, led by one old and experienced matriarch. Okay, and you earn nice, the, the beast. <laughs> exactly the beast. You earn rank through experience and not aggression. Most other primates, you have one very large male big fighter yeah yeah who controls the whole population and as a result bonobo society is pretty non-aggressive there's not that much fighting which again is quite unusual they share food Mm. they're not territorial and unfamiliar bonobos from other troops can kind of just come say hi mingle have sex go away you do what they want and the males in the bonobo society Uh, form lengthy friendships with females and as a result of the like female monkey government as previously described the female bonobos form lots and lots of really intricate bonds with other females and they prefer Mm. to associate with males who are respectful and easygoing you know Um, and because of the good yeah and because of the strong female bonds the females use their alliances to exclude any male that is coercive or domineering, they're just like, you can piss off. You're gone. You're cancelled. Yeah. And he doesn't, he, yeah, he doesn't get a look in. Be nice or get fucked. Yeah. Exactly. And the females can select mates at their leisure, which is not actually normally the case within primates. That's great. Yeah, I actually, cool. this, it's not that long, this piece. So we're just going to be talking about some queer monkey sex now, if that's cool. Excellent. And the article that is from ResearchGate, which homosexuality homosexual behavior in primates has some pretty good when i say good some pretty insightful pictures uh, (laughs) diagrams about how 
the pairings work and I'll share it with you and maybe you can decide whether or not that's safe for work or or to go on mm-hmm. as a not safe okay. for work uh, graphic on the uh, <laughs> social media. Those because... people trawling through Instagram now being like, show me the monkey sex. Um... <laughs> exactly. Show me it. Uh, so sexual activity plays a huge role in bonobo society. Um, they do it so often uh, it doesn't last long, but it's, yeah, very okay. often. And it is sometimes referred to as the bonobo handshake. But <laughs> I want to stress at this point, okay, so I got into describing this and I was like, I think I need to just outline this for certain. I am not describing yep. bonobos as bisexual because they have sex a lot with everyone. I'm describing them okay. as bisexual because they engage in, uh, they have sex with both male and female partners for pleasure, bonding, uh, yeah, not, no preference, just... yeah, it's not a preference based on sex and it's not because of a lack of mates or dominance or too much horniness, which is what homosexual behaviour in other species is often attributed to. This is just, okay. they like who they like and that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So as I mentioned, it's about forming social bonds, conflict resolution, reconciliation, uh, mm-hmm. and they're pretty polyamorous. You know, they don't really have monogamous relationships with one particular bonobo. Okay. bonobo and they don't... The staple of polyamory is a bonobo. I love it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, there's no, there's no discrimination based on sex or age either, apart from the only discrimination is between mothers and their adult male sons. And I was like, that's fine. That's allowed. It's fine. We don't need to, yeah, we don't need to get like Oedipus Rex on this. Like, that's cool. Like, yeah. We can draw the line at. (laughs) That's where the line is. So roughly 60% of bonobo sexual activity occurs between two or more females. So the females are the more sexually active, which represents the highest frequency of homosexuality known in any primate species. And homosexuality has been reported for all great apes, which includes mm. humans. We are a great ape, as well as another other primate species. But bonobos have the most sex and also the most homosexual sex of all of them. They're just oh really? Yeah, so they outnumber they outnumber us exactly. Because actually, bisexuality, homosexuality in human populations is is quite low. Mm. But in bonobos, because it's, it's frowned upon. Yeah, um, because, whereas because of social they pressure. don't give a shit in the monkey. They don't. They don't give no shits, and it's sixty percent. That's really high. That's so high. And that's the natural amount, right? Like, if if you were just left to your own devices, it would be at that that amount, that level. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking, I was thinking about this as I was writing. I was like, I wonder if we would have been like a human population if we didn't have lots of social pressure, religion, mm. like mm. societal taboos. Would we mostly? just be bisexual you know because yeah, it seems it just be a balanced amount it seems so common and so normal in the animal kingdom that it's like why have we got a whole thing about it and so i, I was thinking that that actually probably we would have been a much more bisexual why culture. do we have a whole thing about it? i don't know maybe we just thought too much about it and then we got confused you know when you're anxious and you overthink something let's maybe make we, this may- law now yes yeah exactly you're like yeah no yeah it was probably just like one really awkward you know sexual encounter and we said oh, oh, that, was, oh, oh. Must, that can't happen ever again for anyone ever <laughs> just because because i'm uncomfortable nobody's allowed to ever do that again yeah i reckon that's history yeah i think we've i, just take that I feel like we've worked that out we've solved Done. it um female bonobos engage in a number of sexual activities with each other in bonding they're the only primate other than humans known to engage in uh, kissing with tongue uh, and they also rub their genitals 
together uh, in a practice which is often called genitogenital rubbing, GG rubbing, which <gasps> is basically rubbing. just the non-human version of trimming. They're just scissoring, like, isn't it? Yeah, they're just they like, but they like. There's not like a, a this. I, I don't know. I'm doing the like scissoring hand symbol to to Daisy. It's more like a face to face kind of situation. There's not the. I okay. don't know how to explain going it. Straight I'll, for the straight for the clitoris. I'll like, send you the uh, the diagrams. You, you'll see. You'll see. And there's a guy. <laughs> This is a maybe. This is TMI. I don't know. Ethologist sounds like a threat, though. I'll send you. The, I'll send you the diagram. <laughs> I'm gonna send you the fucking diagram. The threat I'm into. You you're know, gonna see. It. It's it's a bit like Monkey Karma Sutra book. Uh, okay. Yeah. So prepare yourself. But it's drawings. Well, it is a Friday night. You know. We're we're both in lockdown alone. <laughs> um, there's an ethologist, uh, which is like a, an animal behaviorist called okay. Jonathan Balcom, and he stated that female bonobos rub their clitoris together rapidly for about ten or twenty seconds. And this behavior and this behavior may be repeated in rapid succession. Is usually accompanied with grinding and shrieking, which sound, I don't know. That sounds like they're excited about it. And he added that they do it on average every every two hours. Every, <laughs> every two hours they're doing it for, for just in mating season or just all the time. All the time, just all the time. Yeah, fancy a rub. Like, just like like good on them. <laughs> who has the time in the day? Like if nothing else, once every two hours. Yeah, well, I was I was gonna go hunting for food, but now that you wanna you know <laughs> yeah. bump bump. Nasties, let's have a go. Oh, bumping uglies. Yeah, and there was another guy, Franz de Waal, from the Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. He wrote in the Scientific American in 1995, a pair, he described a pair of female bonobos doing this tribbing, this uh, GG rubbing, as emitting grins and squeals, probably reflecting an orgasmic experience. And I was like, yeah, because they're doing it. That's kind of yeah. like why people do that, why animals do that. Yeah, they're squealing with joy because it's fun. Okay. <laughs> and I just, I don't know, maybe that is maybe that is too gross but i i read it, i thought it was really funny no um, way like i'm not gonna shame i'm not gonna shame my bonobo sisters like they can they can do what they, they want they can do what they want and every also, two hours i mean good on them they're better stamina than me i mean it doesn't last as long you know it's about a 10 or 20 seconds 20 seconds every two hours i think actually sounds pretty reasonable um you know it's like a cigarette break isn't it <laughs> Instead of going out for a cigarette, they just do that. But they also have, so this is, I don't know, maybe again, this is too much information. I thought it was really funny. I described it to my partner and she was like, that's really gross. (laughs) Female bonobos have a massive clitoris and it's much more externalised. So they are about half the size of a human, but their clits are three times bigger. Three times bigger, but they're also still half the size. So it's almost like if they were the same size as us, it would be six times bigger. And there was a a, a scientist who said, it's visible enough to waggle unmistakably as they walk. And I was like, that, that's like big clit energy. Just swaggering around with it. And I was like, that is, just think about that. Impractically big. Waggling waggling as well. Waggling, waggling. That's what, I think about how, someone... I don't know how, how big a, um, a human clitoris is, but like to be three times the amount is. It's big enough yeah, to waggle, Daisy. To be, vis- to be visible. Yep. Okay, waggling. Got it. Let's not say waggling. <laughs> exactly. Let's not. Let's not do that. Yeah. So that's that's amazing. That's some stuff about the females, and obviously the the males are also bisexual. It's not just the women having a great matriarchal time boning around. The males are also up to gay shit they get it on in in a really saucy way and it's common for male i wouldn't ma- put it past them <laughs> male on male mounting is quite similar yeah uh, it's done quite a lot in a kind of similar to heterosexual mounting so like one of the males will lie on his back and the other one will get on top and they'll just kind of like rub the dicks together a little bit yeah just humping humping each other and they, they also do a thing which i have been informed by the internet is called 
frotting. So frotting, frotting. I can't quite say it. Frotting, but basically, two bonobos can like hang out in a tree or whatever, and then they just kind of hit the dicks together like they're penis fencing or just like put them together and just sort of touch up on both of them at the same time and I was like wow with is... like a danger element of hanging from the trees yeah and I it was it this has been like a really educational experience for me just so you know I've been like wow huh so informative <laughs> um, and males danger. also do a thing called rump rubbing which I was like well that sounds delightful but that's just where they like either is reconciliation after a conflict mm-hmm. or one of them will literally explicitly try and solicit sex from the other they'll just kind of like back up into each other butt to butt and then just rub the butts together just like just rub, rub, your rub, butt. rub they used the word rubbing of butts and scrotal sacks but i felt sick at that so i was just like you omitted butt. that until now but until now, now it, so. because i had to experience it you have i to like butt rubbing it. that's fine rump rubbing actually rump rubbing sorry and that's sorry, really cute rubbing. just a bit of rr rump rubbing yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> for all those squeaky rumps out there god yeah sounds delightful you know just exactly and you know i read one article that has the diagrams in it and i will i will send them over um because it is it's very it's very informative to see the diagrams because uh, you can't really understand it if you see it i just i I bet it is i bet it is you've been doing some like really useful hand gestures though for me Um, (laughs) i know but this is this is an audio (laughs) medium they can't see my hand gestures it's imprinted in my mind if nothing exactly good you can like draw it a diagram of me doing the hand gestures we'll do an insta live and you can just uh you can just oh my do, God. The, uh, yeah. do the do the hand gestures <laughs> and then you know both of them male and female between they can just have sometimes they just have group sex the kissing they also do oral sex and just kind of like touch up on each other whatever 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 they feel like you know it's one of the things i said about conflict resolution so bonobos will have sex like at the drop of a hat just one of the researchers was saying like if you if you throw a new toy into a, an enclosure bon- the mm-hmm. bonobos will run towards it stop briefly have sex and then go and play with a new toy because and they think one of the reasons is is it diverts attention away from the source of conflict is that they mm. could have both reached the toy at the same time and then fought over it but instead mm. they have sex release tension and then they can have a jolly old time. And that's one of the and reasons... And they communally experience the toy. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons they think that bonobo society, culture, whatever, is so much less aggressive. Is because they, they have sex so often, it diverts attention they're just chill. away. Yeah, they're, they're just so chilled. They don't have uh, as much attention placed on, like, who's getting food, who's not getting food, who's getting attention, who's not getting attention. Because everybody's getting attention all the time. And, like, yeah. that's... Everybody fine. just stop for a minute, have sex, and then we'll work through this conflict exactly and bonobos like other species there's um you know dolphins do it other other species of primates uh, giraffes and things they show that sexual behavior like a behavior mm. isn't just about reproduction yeah. animals don't just have sex to reproduce humans don't just have sex to reproduce it's not mm. solely a function of reproduction it has a yeah it has a function outside of reproduction exactly and it's a lot more to do with just like enjoying yourself having a nice time bonding like feeling mm. good and we may never like there may not be another wild animal that strictly is homosexual for its whole life um mm. like some humans are but we know that most most animals or like let's just say many 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 animals do 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 have homosexual behavior as a norm and yeah. there's like a completely natural part of their life and they don't they don't have categories of sexual orientation they don't know what like 
that we yeah. need to put everything in boxes for some reason mm-hmm. because that's just mm-hmm. how we all are as people. They're just doing what they do. They use sex yeah. for all sorts of reasons to satisfy all sorts of needs from simple pleasure to social advancement. And, you know, that means being flexible. You know, to live in a society means to be flexible. And that's kind of all I got really on that. And I just think that bonobo life so seems true. like life, right? See, yeah. That sounds so... I mean, it sounds very compli- like very complex and intense, but also... It but it takes the pressure nice. off, you know. If you're just, you're just going about your business and any conflict that crops up, you just... You know, you work through it. You shag yeah. through it. You just have a little hump, then be like, oh, yeah, right, and well, everyone can fine. think straight. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. So that is that is the That's so fascinating. sexual animal, animal. Oh my God. Absolute icons. The bonobos. Who knew? So great. They're so interesting. I didn't know so much of this stuff. Um, They're really interesting. They should be the absolute, you know, they should be the main exhibit at the Natural History. Yeah. Fuck the mammoth bones. Like. <laughs> Tell me that the mammoth is queer. Do you know what I mean? And then I'll be. <laughs> No, oh, that's not how I, that's not how I relate to history at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not what this entire podcast is about. That's Absolutely not how we relate not. to life. No. Absolutely not. That'd be favoritism, it'd be bias. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh Thank you so much. That was so fascinating. Right. And not gross at all. You know, I'm I'm intrigued and fascinated by our natural world and this is not stuff that was taught to me in you know, biology in school. That's where my mm. uh, my uh, knowledge of uh, uh biology kind of stopped at my academic knowledge anyway, so this has been really, yeah, really great yeah. for me to, to learn a bit. And yeah, bonobos. Shout oh, out bonobos, to, man. to those. And that's one of the things is like, they couldn't teach us this even if they wanted to because of section mm. 28 affected what yeah. was in the syllabus. So they, even even the teachers that knew that animals did gay stuff all the time were homosexual, re- left, right and centre whenever they felt like it. They yeah. couldn't tell us. It sucks, right? Like, if, you were, if you were, you know, a little queer biologist um, and you were a teacher who could see that or, or knew that, and you'd be like, oh, this is really great example of, you know, scientific relevance that would mm. just be so enlightening for this kid. Or, you know, this yeah. historic story of, um, you know, of a, of a queer scientist. And I can't tell them because yeah. I could lose my job. Like, that yeah. is shameful. Fuck you, Thatcher. Fuck you, Thatcher. <laughs> Sorry to name names, but um, <laughs> name absolutely. Go fuck yourself. Section 28 was a, a dumb shit of a... I think it's really it's really impacted our ability to to know our own history as queer people yeah. and to know that, that we have a place in the pretty world. Pretty much all of our education like we can both relate to that and yeah to not know about these things like until now until you know as an adult to find out all this you know ri- you know richness to <sighs> rich connection to stuff that has been just left out or omitted from education and history is just really sad. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of that's why I love doing this this podcast is because I I feel like it's a chance to to finally teach myself and be taught the things that I wish I'd learned at school mm-hmm. you know yeah. I just want to I just it's want important to, yeah and even if it's not important it should still be visible it should still be there you know who who yeah. is who gets to decide what history is is available and you know discoverable I feel like this is like our kind of act two crux uh where we're like oh my god the struggle um and then we kind of go on the upward trajectory into like season three and we're like pow 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 um no it is yeah it's really it's it's been great for me doing um doing this and long may it continue yes Um, indeed thank you for the uh the biological bisexual um awakening it's all right no problem at all daisy uh where can people find us on social meds so you can find us on uh, twitter and instagram by the way social meds um, <laughs> uh, you can find us at Radio Zaddy 
Radio XADDY on Twitter and Instagram, and also um, our new website. Um, haven't committed to a, a full domain name yet, but uh, we're just we're Radio Zaddy. We're on a WordPress. You'll find us. Look us up. Get in touch. Like if you want to hear about something. Excellent. I think I've linked our website, uh, WordPress as it is now on mm. the Anchor FM uh, Radio Zaddy page. So if you can find that, Sweet. you should be able to find the WordPress. We've got a bit of a reading list going there as well, which should be good fun. You can listen there yes. if you like. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. This has been it's been really great. Thank you for coming along. Uh, I've been Hannah Bestwick, and with me as always is Daisy Thurston-Gent. Thank you very much, guys. See you later. Take care and stay safe. Good night. night. Bye.